Welcome to episode 43 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where we go through the readings for our Read the Bible in a Year plan, and we discuss next week's readings. This week, we're going to be talking about some chapters from all four Gospels, most of them in Matthew. We're here in the thick of Jesus' ministry still, although we are rapidly approaching its end. So the first thing we have marked to talk about, uh, which I think is probably good because I imagine that both folks who are reading it and then I think just generally uh, the tail end of Matthew 25 generates some thoughts and some, mm. some questions in the church. This is uh, Jesus' parable about the sheep and the goat. I think first, a big picture, more big picture question would be why? Like, I feel like somebody who... Even potentially somebody who's grown up in the church, like the first time you actually read the Gospels all the way through, Mm -hmm. you realize some things about Jesus that you may not have known before. And one of them is that he talks about judgment in hell a lot. Yes, he does. Much, much, much more than you would think, you know, like reflected in our Mm -hmm. talking about him or our preaching. I guess maybe the first question would be why... In you know, again, in the big picture sense, was that such a a uh, emphasis in Jesus' preaching? Well, I'll just we'll just take them one at a time. So go That's with that. That's a good question. <clears throat> so the I think that the answer to that is one of the flaws of contemporary preaching, and we have such an aversion to what we call works righteousness. Mm-hmm. This idea that you earn somehow God's favor, which is not true. You cannot earn God's favor. And this feeling like anything that that hints at that in any way um, must be bad and avoided means that we we lean hard away from any of the um, judgment or consequences talk a lot of the time in the New Testament. But there are real expectations placed upon believers. And so one of the things that we read in Jesus's ministry is that opting into the covenant is not just a head thing. It's not just a belief thing. There is an expectation that if you are in the covenant, there will be consequences in your life that will be shown. And I think one of the things Jesus wants us to know is that it's not just a head thing. It is a whole being and whole life thing. And most of the most of the judgments are, well, I think all of the judgment statements have nothing to do with thoughts. They have to do with actions and mm. commitments and habits and practices. And I think that matters. Um, I think he really cares about what we do and don't do. So thinking about, you know, so we say we say that this is a parable. I mean, in the Bible I'm using, that the word parable is not in the heading, which is notable. So should we think about this like a parable, this this teaching, or not? And if it is a parable, then... Does, how does that help or, or hinder how we understand Jesus' words here? I actually don't think it's a parable. The sheep and the goats, I think okay. it's a metaphor. Okay. So parables are these stories that are told. They were able to get inside of. It kind of create, paints a little world for you to, to explore in the midst of. Um, in this, we just have the, the, the metaphor is the sheep and the goats. The, the people that truly belong to God are the sheep. And the ones who think they do but don't are the goats. And he paints this clear picture about 
you know, those who who say or who think that they're they're his, they're going to see him returning with joy. And he's going to say, you're not mine. And that's that's disconcerting because I remember reading a while ago, Francis Chan wrote uh, a book about how or in his in his book, I think, called Crazy Love. He talks about how we read the parable of the soils and we always assume ourselves to be the good soil. Right. And it's just this comforting thing. But the parable is supposed to really make you do a gut check. Um, this is one of those passages that has kept me up at night before. Not that I might secretly not belong to God. I don't believe that that's true, and I don't think that's what he's saying here. What I think that we're, we're being told is that if the commitment to Jesus goes no deeper than an intellectual assent, um, if it goes no deeper, if it doesn't go deep enough to cause life change, then something's wrong. And that's an important thing for us to know. There are people and have always been that will want to say, oh yeah, I'm in, I'm, I'm good with it. Uh, just don't make any demands on the rest of my life. Um, and that's not what this is. This is a whole allegiance shift. It's a whole giving of oneself and... Yeah. So I think it's a metaphor. I don't think it's a parable. Sorry, I rambled a bit. No, I think that's, that's, I mean, I think it's just clarifying because it's, it's part of, and of course the chapters are not original. Right. You know, those were added in later, but the rest of 25 are parables. And so I think, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, useful to maybe point out that there's a bit of a shift in, in communication genre there. Mm -hmm. Um. What do you suppose, like, why does Jesus say this? Like, what is his intent behind this metaphor? So just before this comes the parable of the bags of gold, right? And it's the parable of the talents that you've probably heard in other places where this, um, this, this servant or these servants are given, given resources. And some of them go and they, they grow it, right? They, they make um, they make more come out of what they've been given. They take the gifts they've been given and they use them um, to create a harvest, to create a benefit. And then some of them don't. In other words, some of them give their lives to the kingdom and some of them don't. And I think that that context is very important for the sheep and the goats because I think Jesus is riffing on that idea of those who invest and give of themselves and those who don't. I mean, one of the things that we we don't know without the back without a lot of background study uh, of the first century, we tend to assume that all of the Jewish people were just incredibly devout, right? Mm -hmm. These were all very devout Jewish people, but that's that's just actually not true. I mean, just like today, there were people that really were invested um, in their faith and there were people who were not. And so the idea of someone who was very peripherally connected, who, who half-heartedly um, was committed to God, was something they were familiar with. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not what this is about. That's not going to work. Well, the, we, we included this story under the theme of humility. And the idea of this, of humility for me here, was the, the letting go of self, Right. And the prioritization of the kingdom or the kingdom work over putting oneself first. So it's 
humility is the idea of Jesus coming before the self. And I think that that's what's happening here. You know, there is a, a, it would be easy for a person to come to Jesus and say, oh, you want to give me eternal life and you want to give me all these blessings and all these wonderful things. That's, that's great. Oh, I'm going to be forgiven for all my sins. Well, then I might as well just not really give you anything and take the gift that you give me. And that doesn't work. Worship has this idea of service and commitment and giving of the self. And I mean, we're, we're told over and over again in the New Testament that it's our whole being that God wants. And so I think that that's, that theme runs through the Gospels pretty heavily. And I think it's worth noting as well, just within this teaching that Jesus seems, you know, and I think that we, you know, I think this is one, this is one window or one picture into what the judgment will be, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we kind of need to take the other things he says and some of the references and Paul and, you know, and I mean, just the whole witness, you know, together. Um, so I think it can be an error to, to really obsess over one particular de any particular detail in any particular passage about, you know, any of these things, but the last judgment, just cause that's what we're talking about currently. Um, but it seems to be that, you know, Jesus is saying one, that, that the, the, uh, the criteria for judgment consists in what you have not done, not, you know, and again, I'm not saying that making a total claim, but just within the sphere of what he's saying here, that they're being judged for what they really have not done. That's what they're being condemned for, you know, which I think is, is generally not where our emphasis sits when we're thinking about, if we ever think about being judged, you know, by God, it's usually of the bad things we've done, mm -hmm. you know, not the good, the good things we didn't do. And so I think that that is worth meditating on, <laughs> you know, and just, and, and kind of what you were saying, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the Lord, it seems to me, again, taking the New Testament witness altogether, like he doesn't want us to like sit and fret about whether or not we're saved. But, and Paul says this many times in the letters, to test yourselves, to test your hearts, mm -hmm. you know, to test your minds. And so I think it's a similar thing of, of, of to sit, you know, on a regular basis and really assess your life. You know, sure, you don't want to do bad things, but if you spend all your time and energy avoiding bad things so that you never actually do good things to people, that's not good. No, it's not. That's not good. Like, that's the exact attitude that Jesus is speaking to here at the end of Matthew 25. Kind mm -hmm. of the priest and Levite crossing their street so they don't... Right. They don't... Uh, touch the man who's been beaten to death or be half half to death because they don't want to become unclean it's like all right well you know a lot of good it did you because you didn't do you know the righteous thing you should have done and so i just think that that's that's worth uh just just pointing out and thinking about well because the argument gets brought up you know we're supposed to avoid the appearance of evil and one of the things that can do is when you're uncertain about something you stay away from it or right. if anyone right. could perceive the thing you're doing is bad then you stay away from it. Well, the problem is we live in a world where everyone... Everyone can perceive everything, everything is bad. Is bad. There's, you can do nothing without people thinking that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And so that's just not an option. And so loving people and endeavoring to love people well, even if that might be perceived strangely by some people, um, I think is, is what Jesus calls us to do. You know, if you're going into a prison all the time to take care of those terrible people in prison or to minister to them or to care for them, 
there are people that would think that you shouldn't be doing that. Those people need to be punished and left alone. Right. And you should not refrain because some people think it's bad. With Calvary bringing over Ukrainians, um, there are people that think that we shouldn't be doing that because there are needs closer to home or right. there's corruption in the Ukrainian government, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we're not going to not do it just because some people think it's bad. Yeah, at the U of I, it's not as big of a deal as it used to be because they've kind of clamped down on it. But when I was in college, uh, the week before spring break, there was something called the unofficial St. Patrick's Day the weekend before spring break because usually St. Patrick's Day fell right, while we were all gone. Which and is so probably then we on had purpose. the yeah. unofficial St. Patrick's Day, which I think my fresh, really my freshman, I think the peak of it was my sophomore year. I never went. I always fled the campus and went home. <laughs> for the weekend but holier souls than i you know there would be uh, ministry groups like navigators who would like hand out bottles of water to people i mean because it was yeah it was just a big i mean it was like a big block party you know for half a mile on campus town or other groups would like cook pancakes you know because if people do a lot of drinking they're gonna need food carbs and water and you know and i (laughs) And so you have that happening, but then you have the other people crossing their arms, other Christians and being like, well, why would you do that? Because it's their fault if they drink way too much and then wind up, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, why would you, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Be kind. Condone. That's oh, that's condone. the magic Ooh, word in evangelical right. circles. It looks why like Why would you condone it? And, and again, I think that their response is like, we're not. <laughs> You know, and I, there's there's a balance, I think, to be had here. You know, some of us are going to err on the side of enabling, mm-hmm. and we need to be aware of that yes. and, and submit to other people's wisdom. But there are others of us who are going to err on the side of whatever the opposite of enabling is, you know, kind of closing the gates. Yeah. And being too worried about, oh, well, you know, I don't want to condone. It's like, all right. I mean, I... I get that, and it's not an illegitimate concern. It's not an illegitimate concern. That's true. But, you know, I think that that helping people is not the same as condoning their behavior. And I think that God himself is the first and best example of that. That's exactly right. One of the things you might notice as you read through the um, New Testament is, especially if you're reading through the Gospels for the first time, Jesus talks about money a lot, a lot more than you might think he does. And one of the reasons you might not realize how often he talks about money is it's an uncomfortable topic to talk about at church because, well, we're all very rich. And if you don't think you're rich, um, you do need to know if you are listening to this podcast on a device that you own, you are rich in Jesus's mind. The the kind of poverty and, and wealth that were present at the time, puts us all squarely in the classification of rich. And that's uncomfortable. We Americans don't like being told that or hearing that perhaps there are um, negatives to the amount of wealth that we have. And so we have this story about a rich young man who comes up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do? And Jesus gives him some answers, right? Uh, it's different in the different gospels, but, but the young man says, you know, I've done this. And Jesus says, if you want to, if you want to finish it, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. So my question to you, Ben, is what are we supposed to do with that? 
Jesus telling this rich young man to sell his possessions and give them to the poor. You know, I think that there's there might be two ways. Well, I'm sure there's more than that, but kind of two ways to kind of take this. Because the, the, the man asks him, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus tells him something that's impossible. And then the disciples say, well, who can be saved? And then Jesus says, you know, that's a famous verse with man. This is impossible, but with God, it is possible. Meaning you, you know, you're right. Nobody can be saved if not for God's action. And so I think like that's, that's the flow of the thought of like it. Jesus's point is that you can't do it. The thing that you, you know, nobody can do. God has to be acting in somebody's heart. Yeah. That decenters the money aspect of this. I think that's one way to read it. I think the other way to read it, and they're not mutually exclusive, but it's just that Jesus, I think, discerned that, you know. This young man. Right. This 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 man, this individual, that this was the thing. You know, this was the idol. This was the primary, you know, uh, uh, object of his, of his heart. You know, so all the other commands, great, you did that, but you also were able to do it because it's kind of easy if you don't care. <laughs> You know, but the the one the thing you care about, that's where you know that's where the heat is. That's where the transformation needs to happen. Well, and the young man goes away sad right, instead of right, doing the thing right. because he's not willing to sell his possessions. I think it's the bullseye, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if it was a different young man, then Jesus would have said something else, you know. And yeah. so I think that, I mean, no, I, I guess apart from like monks and nuns, like no generations of Christians, I feel like have taken this completely seriously (laughs) we'll read later on that paul still has possessions Mm -hmm. and paul was a pretty you know hyped up follower of jesus so you know i think we we can you know we don't have to uh worry i think about whether whether or not you know did he mean this was he i mean i think he was serious to that man and i think he does call people to release their possessions and, and maybe all of them you know in different in different circumstances in different ways um but i think that yeah jesus just rightly discerned that that this person you know and again like what you what you were just saying the the crushing poverty around them and the, and we can't know this but it seems that if anyone in their society was wealthy something bad was happening for them to be accumulating wealth (laughs) either they were stealing it or they were colluding with the romans or they were taking advantage of their workers like this man is not innocent oh i just happened to be rich well because he's also jewish right that's why he's able to say i kept all these commandments and so it's like well you know (laughs) and i'm not a communist I believe in free market capitalism, but no one just happens to be rich. (laughs) Wealth doesn't have to be built on oppression, but it often is. (laughs) And we don't know this about this man. No, we don't. You know, and so we can't, I don't want to push that too far because perhaps, perhaps he just inherited his family owned a lot of land and never mistreated anybody. And it just so happened that he had a relative or a a ancestor that mistreated people and accumulated the wealth. He's not guilty of his ancestors since. Right. So... But I think that that's that's just, I think, worth remembering kind of being in the air, you know, especially because the only other really rich people (laughs) that Jesus seems to interact with are like the Sadducees. And they're certainly wealthy because of their corruption, you know, Mm. and they're taking advantage of pilgrims at the temple, you know, and all these other things. 
you know, in terms of other Jewish people, you know, other rich, wealthy Gentiles, that's kind of a different, in some ways it's a different ballgame. But, so I don't know. I, I, th- I think that that's, it's just, that's just worth kind of keeping in mind, I think, as we're looking at this parable. Yeah. That Jesus is talking to that man, I think, because he saw the truth of his heart. But I think he's also addressing the rich of his age, of his people, and saying, you know, why are you so wealthy when you're, I mean, even linking linking it to Matthew 25, right? It's like, how can you sit, you know, in your palaces eating your fine food while your your brothers and sisters are are suffering. I think that one of the most uncomfortable realizations, I've told this story several times from the pulpit, um, but I was, when I first came to Calvary as the youth pastor, um, I'd not been here for very long, and a young man asked me to lunch, and he had big aspirations to do well in business and economics, and um, he really wanted to be wealthy and had the mind to do it. And so we go to lunch. And he asks me, he says, you know, I've been wrestling with God and money. And he goes, Clayton, how do you deal with, um, he had seen Lisa and I go through a McDonald's drive through a day or two beforehand. And we were just getting milkshakes. And he asked, he goes, how do you deal with like spending money that someone gave to God on milkshakes? Because all of your money was given to God. That, and so, because the church pays me and that's done by tithing. And I, and that hit me. I mean, I really struggled with that for a little bit because, you know, it, it, it feels different when I'm thinking about you, listener, the, the money that you write to the church, thinking that this is going to, you know, give food to a person that's hungry. And instead I'm using it to buy a milkshake. Um, now, it's not wrong for me to buy milkshakes sometimes. Right. But the 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 thing that I realized over time is that that's not actually different from anyone else. Um, all of our money belongs to God. And so. All of our things belong to God. And so a question we should regularly ask ourselves is what would he do with this money? You know, what is his, his desire for this money? And sometimes, you know, you're going to go on a vacation. You're going to buy a new thing. That's not bad. I don't want you to hear that, that anything that you spend money on that is not, you know, the impoverished is bad. But if you live your life in a way that, that a gut check or a heart check is in order, um, I would encourage you to do that. We do encourage tithing and stories like this one are part of it because the church then takes that money and while it pays me and pays Ben, it also gives money to ministries and to missionaries and funds a lot of very good things. But it really should be a thing you think about is how do you spend your money? Um, and we we live, unfortunately, in a time where it's not hard to find causes that are in desperate need for financial support. And it might be good to consider giving more of what you have away. I was asked once a while ago about um, Christians and money and what would Jesus think, you know, would be an inappropriate amount of money for a person to have or make. And that's a really uncomfortable question because I suspect that the answer is a much lower number than I would like to think the answer is. We're, uh, and you said this during the intro, we're we're drawing near to Jesus' death and the end of the gospel stories. Uh, and one of the big kind of transition moments that marks Jesus' literal, I mean, transition from kind of roaming the countryside to being in Jerusalem is what we call the triumphal entry. And uh, I would like for you to just kind of unpack a little bit, like why, what is, what was this? Like, how do the people see 
Jesus riding into the town as on yeah. a donkey because it's a symbol. It's a scene that we're so familiar with that we're like, well, yes, of course. Like it has the meaning it has because that's what it means. It's like, okay, but why did they take this or what did they take it to be? You know, what sort of a statement was Jesus making in doing this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we have a a theme that runs through the New Testament that we don't talk about a lot is the the not just the Messiah theme, but the king theme, right? Jesus is not just priest, but also king. That's what I meant to say, not just priest, but king. And so the there are these prophecies in Zechariah in particular um, and Isaiah that describe um, Yahweh and the future king um, coming into the into Jerusalem riding a donkey. And so we have this, this aside from the, the people seeing it for the first time, people reading it for the first time, we get this strange thing in the first few verses. It, it seems like Jesus is showing a little more than what he usually does about his awareness or his power, telling his followers to go and what they're going to find and what they're supposed to do to get this donkey for him to ride. Um, and Matthew is, is worded, I think it's Matthew that's worded a little weirdly. It kind of seems like Jesus is riding two donkeys. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the idea of this is that he is, he is coming into Jerusalem as, as a prophesied king. Mm. And the people, they, they come around and they, they shout, they chant Hosanna, um, which is a, a, a Old Testament expression that means save or save us. Um, it is a declaration of himself to be the Messiah that they have been waiting for. This is something that Jesus often doesn't do. We see earlier on when people get a glimpse of who he is, um, he tells them to be quiet. You know, it's not, it's not time yet. Well, it's time now. Jesus is announcing his Messiahship as he rides in on a donkey. And the people are celebrating because he's a renowned healer at this point. He's mm-hmm. he's a, a famous rabbi. His word about him has spread. And as he comes into Jerusalem, um, I, I think that the crowd that gathers there, I mean, it's fickle. This is probably the same crowd that gathers around his cross not long after this. But they are, they are chanting, hopefully, that the revolution that they've been waiting for, the Messiah they've been waiting for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years has finally come yeah i mean hearkening back to david hearkening back to uh solomon riding in mm-hmm. on a, a donkey colt after he was crowned maybe even through this well i don't know if we know if it was the same gate i don't know about that i might have just totally made that fact up so double check me it was through the same gate uh-huh the <laughs> no very no. same no gate well, I was guess that it the eye can't of the gate? be the very same gate because it was destroyed right. and rebuilt. But, you know, <laughs> spiritually it was the same uh-huh. gate. Yeah, and this this theme of Jesus' kingship, it goes along with what we were talking about earlier with humility, the giving of one's life. Like he's, we talk about Jesus a lot as savior. And, you know, the, the, the way that he protects us, cares for us, gives us eternal life. But he's king. And that means we're supposed to obey him. And you don't get the one if you're unwilling to do the other. Um, and so there's this picture. And if you can imagine being in Jesus's crew, you know, they've gone around. They've, he's performed these miracles. He's popular with crowds. But holy smokes, like it's happening. You know, this, this 
waiting on a messiah that the Jewish people have been doing forever. It's happening, is the feeling they have. And there'd been other would-be messiahs recently um, that had led revolts and people, this is just different. It feels, I imagine, more right, more godly, the way that he had been doing his ministry. No one has in mind a cross except for Jesus at this point. This is the coming of the king. This is an end of exile moment. Yes. You know, that it's been so long since they've had a, a true king, you know, that wasn't either just a governor appointed by a foreign emperor, you know, or a pretender to the throne. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. What is happening? I don't know. (laughs) Did you just have a stroke? (laughs) Maybe. What happened to your face? Also, we never tripped the Leviticus along. No, I I thought about that a minute ago, yeah. (laughs)